I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside Horror Show. All right, we are still in Massachusetts. This is part two. Um, true, Massachusetts. I was just there over the holidays. Oh, nice. What you do? Uh, Christmas junk. Christmas junk. All the Christmas junk. All the Christmas junk in the world. You okay there? Yeah, I just had to slide my mic out. Okay, yeah, you're gonna hold it too. Yeah. We have new um, equipment, everybody. We got some nice new mics that Nicole got us, and I think they're gonna be working pretty well. Yeah, it could be a learning curve, but definitely a learning curve. Yeah, for sure. But hopefully, you'll still enjoy our dulcet tones on the regular. And I think me scratching my beard might have just gotten recorded. I'm sorry. Sexy. <laughs> so Massachusetts. Um, last time we talked about funny Massachusetts laws. Yes. I don't, I mean, the thing I always think about in Massachusetts is the food that I've had there that I've had nowhere else. Like I've never had whole belly clams except for Massachusetts. See, I am not a seafood person. I mean, I like crab and I like lobster and that's about it. Sometimes I'll eat shrimp. Uh, mini hot dogs are a thing in Massachusetts. Mini hot dogs. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's not, maybe it's just my wife's hometown, but there's this place called Tio's in Pittsfield. And uh, they make these little hot dogs. And they're not like, they're bigger than like cocktail weenies. Okay. And they have little buns that are perfectly sized for them. So you nice. can get like, you know, it's like two mini dogs. It's probably the size of like a regular hot dog. Very nice. But it's like perfect because you're like, they're so good. And then you're like, I only want one and a half. And where did you say this town is? It's in, it's in Western Massachusetts. Okay. In the Berkshires. So, you know, we might just have to go there. Every time you say Berkshires, all I think of is Berkshire Hathaway. <laughs> Every damn time. Uh, but then I think of Anne Hathaway, both the actress and Shakespeare's wife. Mm, I'm so confused. <laughs> and they were both Anne with an E, weren't they? I think they were both Anne with an E. Boy. Anyway, Massachusetts. Massachusetts. So last week, my story was on the far western side of the state. And going to be changing it up now. I am. I'm running all the way across the other side of the state to Cape Cod. Ooh, I like Cape Cod. Have you been there? I have, a long time ago. Really? I've never been there. I want to go. It's nice. That's what I hear. All of my free research led me to believe it is a nice place that I should visit. Yeah, I would definitely suggest going there. So, Cape Cod. Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Cape Cod is the hook-shaped peninsula on Massachusetts' southern, eastern side. So it's when you think of the shape of Massachusetts, there's that like fish hook. That little thing. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a little like, gonna catch you. I'm uh, so eloquent today, guys. <laughs> uh, that is Cape Cod. It's a peninsula that ranges between one mile wide and 20 miles at its widest. Uh, today, Cape Cod's pretty much known as like a summer vacation spot, a nice place to retire even. Yeah. And it's one of the first places that was actually settled by English colonists in North America. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, people have been hanging out at Cape Cod since the 1630s. Okay, that actually makes sense because I know like the Massachusetts Bay Colony was like the big thing. So even though people have been hanging out on Cape Cod since the 1630s, development on the Cape was really slow. And that's mostly because it has pretty limited resources. Uh, early settlers landed and they pretty much cleared away most of the forest on the peninsula, which led to some erosion of all the farmable arable land. 
That's always nice. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, a, a lot of the stuff was because they had to heat their houses. And you know how cold New England winters oh, oh are. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So they chopped down them trees and went through them like gangbusters. Mm-hmm. The farming was a little dicey, too, because the soil there, it's like beach soil, you know. It's not very deep. It's not very fertile for some things. But you can grow things that love that soil. So things like strawberries, cranberries. That's really the agricultural products that flourish on Cape Cod. All right. So during the 17th and 18th centuries, Cape Cod was a hub for fishing and whaling. And it really kind of flushed out the Cape Cod economy. So no longer struggling to farm these cranberries and things like that. Now they're, you know, sending ships out to deep sea whale. So during the 17th century, um, there were so many whales around Cape Cod that they would actually, like, come into the Cape. What? Yeah. And, like, colonists, the Indians, oops, I said Indians. That's all right. the, The Native Americans showed the colonists how you could basically get into like canoes and like scare the whales to like beach themselves what the fuck yeah i'm like that's insane that's nuts okay but they were they were like the smaller coastal whales yeah like like belugas those little ones right i don't know i don't know much about whales Me either i just know like i think like the sperm whale is the largest one yeah and the blue blue whale yeah it's like it's hearts the size of like a you know station wagon or something oh that's nice i don't know if any of that's true we might all just be making all of this up. I may need to edit all of that out later. Do not trust us ever. <laughs> but anyway, Cape Cod was a jumping off point for deep sea whaling because it's right on the Atlantic. I know that's one of my hobbies. Always. Deep okay. sea whaling. Just going to get my Ahab on. <laughs> <laughs> um. Fortunately, there were a lot of other New England places that had just better ports for, for whaling, and they didn't have the need to go down an entire peninsula to actually transport goods that were coming from sea. So eventually, the whaling industry in Cape Cod sort of took a back burner. Uh, by the time the 19th century rolls around, uh, whaling is sort of on its way out at the Cape. However, tourism is up. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. So... As far back as like the 1850s, when the first train services from Boston were established uh, on the Cape, people have been going there because it's a nice place to get away from the city. You're not too far. There's beaches literally everywhere. I would love to live on the beach. I know. Except okay. around hurricane season. Uh, true, true. Um, and it was kind of interesting because I didn't realize how long it took Cape Cod to actually get rail service. Like it's a pretty rural place back in the 19th century. It wasn't until 1873 that, like, Providence Town, like, the very, very yeah. tip of the hook, got rail service. And one article I wrote was, like, Providence Town back then was basically a bunch of huts on the beach. <laughs> I'm like, ooh. Providence Town actually has a very large gay community. I know. People tell me I need to go there. I haven't lived since I've, I've been to Pijal. I've never been there. But I've never been there. Yeah. Anyway. So, the Cape basically turned towards tourism to bolster the economy in the late 19th century. Uh, and that's true of some of its larger towns. Our story today actually will have a lot to do with one of the largest towns in Cape Cod, which is Hyannis. Okay, I've heard of it. Mm-hmm. You probably have. Um, Hyannis Port is like a little like yeah. popular subsection of it. It's the capital of the Cape co- locally, like people call it the capital. Okay. Um, I believe it is actually the capital of one of the counties on, on Cape Cod. And it's 
the jumping off point for getting to a lot of the different islands. So things like Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, like you, okay. you, you go through Hyannis to go out to those islands. There once was a girl from Nantucket. I had never actually heard the rest of that limerick. I know it involves a bucket, which always worries me. Something with a bucket, and then I'm wondering, gee, what could rhyme with that? Only things <laughs> that are very dirty, which is, I guess, why people think that all limericks are dirty. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. I always get I always get concerned though when someone like starts a limerick, and it's like there once was, and like the last word is just something. I'm like, I don't even want to know what you're gonna rhyme with that. Yeah, like, the terror. <laughs> <laughs> we actually had to write a limerick in school in like second or third grade. It was like one of our projects, hmm. and um, I still remember mine. There once was a man from Seattle who lived on a farm raising cattle. A ghost came to play. The man ran away, leaving behind all his chattels. That's actually really good. Yeah, and I was like, how did I know the word chattels when I was that young? But, oh well. Watching a lot of uh, daytime TV. Maybe, I guess. <laughs> Watching a lot of roma- sweeping romantic epics. Oh, yeah, because that's definitely me. <laughs> So anyway, as I was saying, uh, Hyannis is the beginning point for our story today, which is all about the ill-fated romance of Reverend Clarence Virgil Thompson Richson and Avis Linnell. Wait, that was all one name? That was all one man. <laughs> Say it again for me. Reverend Clarence Virgil Thompson Richson. Oh my God. Luckily, he usually went by Clarence V.T. Richson. Oh, Okay. And his love interest, which was Miss Avis Linnell, or Lionel, I don't know. Linnell. Avis? Avis, yeah. Avis, let the car rental. Okay, I don't know. I just never heard that be someone's name. but I've actually never heard it either. Yeah, I'd probably say Linnell for the last name. So their romance began in 1908. But before we get into how these two lovebirds ended up in such a sticky situation guess what it ends in murder spoiler alert well i mean i'm not really that surprised <laughs> <laughs> seeing as you know our podcast is about murder and ghosts I mean, true true it's no bonnie and glad situation it's straight up murder okay. anyway um i do want to talk a little bit about richson and, and just because i thought he was super fascinating and it's such a weird story about how he ends up living this very odd crazy ass life ends up at hyannis meets avis and then things just get crazier from there. All right. Hit me up with some crazy. All right. So Clarence Richson was born the son of a tobacco farmer in Amherst, Virginia, February 15th, 1876. Now, at around age 13, Richson left home to find work in Lynchburg, Virginia. But that was after he suffered several traumatic head injuries as a child. So these head injuries were very all over the place. They were everything that you'd expect to happen to a kid, like falling down the front stairs and hitting your head, falling off a horse. Are you doing another brain injury, frontal lobe story? Hmm, that's a complicated question. Okay. And I think that's something, as we talk through the story, we can can revisit. I'll be patient if I have to. (laughs) So he fell off a horse, cracked his head on a rock. His brother at one point hit him in the head and he was unconscious until the doctor arrived. So oh, my God. Yeah. And this is all before the age of 13. So oh, wow. As a little, little kid. Well, these head injuries didn't necessarily alter his personality, according to everything I read. So it wasn't like that same case of like Ray, Ray uh, Fernandez. Yeah. Where all of a sudden you go from being a nice, normal person to like kind of a crazy, crazy, angry person. Yes. This wasn't the case with Richson. He was still the charming, nice person that he always was. However... 
it does seem to indicate that it affected his impulse control and his religious zeal based on his behavior as he got older. So Interesting. Yeah. So at 15, Richardson moves from Virginia to Missouri to work for a cousin, and he joins a local Baptist church. And this is when he starts to become increasingly religious. Okay. So during this time, he became increasingly obsessive about his sexual desires and his religion. He experienced the first of several bouts of spontaneous unconsciousness that occurred throughout his life. Oh, like blackouts? Mm-hmm. And basically what would happen is he would, according to Richardson, experience a nocturnal emission. Oh. Yeah. And then go into like this coma-like state for a day or two. That is so weird. Super I, weird. I still find wet dreams to be a very strange phenomena because it's never happened to me in my life and everyone's like it happens to everyone i'm just like well guess what you've never had a sexy dream i have had sexy dreams but nothing's Nothing's gone on down there i mean i guess it's a thing i don't know i mean i don't know if women have anything similar i mean i don't think there's like i don't think ladies have nocturnal emissions but i know there's like sexy dreams sexy dreams of course you know you wake up and you're like, I feel sexy for no reason. <laughs> I always feel sexy for no reason. <laughs> Listen, Justin Timberlake. Bringing sexy back. Mm-hmm. So a local doctor was called in to examine Richardson because he was straight up unconscious for a day or two. And he was kind of like, I don't think this is so much your nocturnal emission, son. I think it was that medication I gave you for that skin al- allergic reaction that you had a couple days ago. Oh, shit. But Richard himself was convinced that this was part of uh, his, you know, unbridled sexuality and that these nocturnal emissions were just too much for his body to bear and that, you know, this is what's going to cause it. And this did happen a couple more times throughout his life, as I mentioned. So very interesting weird thing so by 1894 when richson's 18 he has grown into to be a very tall and quite handsome man well good for him i mean he's got a large sex drive i'm assuming from the previous conversation Mm -hmm. so being good looking helps with that yep and he also discovered that he's actually pretty charming when it comes to the ladies Ooh. so much so that uh by the time he was 18 he had been engaged to two girls um at the same time at the same time. At the same time. He's a player. He is a player. And hilariously enough, uh, both girls broke up with him, not only when they learned about each other, but when they discovered that he had a third fiance in oh. the next town over. <laughs> Are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> yeah. So not only is Ugh. he like very concerned about how like his sexual feelings are in terms of like his religious religiosity and stuff religiosity is that a word yes it is it means deeply religious or strongly religious feelings i mean i can figure out what it means but i just it sounds so strange i know i had to look it up to make sure it was real i'd be like (laughs) am i making up this word do i is it a real word i've done that before so the next year which would be 1895 richson again has a brief engagement to another girl so i guess she's fiance number four at this point okay before he becomes very ill now, the nature of his illness wasn't quite clear from my research, but it seems that during his illness, he was suffering from bouts of delirium and would try to wander out of the house at night. So a local doctor was called in who determined that Richin was suffering from some kind of mental breakdown. And on this doctor's recommendation, he was sent to the Missouri Baptist Sanitarium. He was a patient there for several weeks before being sent home to Virginia. Now, his experiences as a teenager in Missouri, kind of set the tone for the rest of Richardson's life. 
where he would have these bouts of delirium and illness and then have a period of recovery all the while being very involved in the local church and also romancing ladies. Oh, all right. Mm Mm-hmm. So three years later, Richson is well enough to leave Virginia, and he returns to Missouri to attend William and Julet College, which is a Baptist college based out of, I think, St. Louis. I actually have heard of that yeah. before. So They're pretty famous. Yeah. So he goes to William Julet, and then he is ordained a Baptist minister. He becomes engaged to one of his professor's daughters, and this woman actually lends him money to help finish his education. This is number five now? Yep, number five. And he ends up picking up some additional work as a fill-in, like, reverend, like a substitute reverend at some local churches. That's always been my dream job, substitute reverend. Pinch hit reverend. (laughs) (laughs) So while he's still a student and he's he's, uh, preaching at these various churches around the St. Louis area, he eventually finds a permanent position at the Bud Park Baptist Church in 1901. And at the same time, he becomes engaged to a local widow who's notably not part of his congregation. So that's fiance number six. And he's still still engaged to that uh, professor's daughter as well. And he hasn't actually married any of these women. It's just engagements. Just romance. Romancing in the pants. He is just, I don't know, something else. I feel like, too, this is like that weird turn of the century time where like when someone's engaged, you're like, yeah, they're they're totally doing it. Yeah. Like, that's like the byword is like, his betrothed, <laughs> his booty call. So just like, that makes it okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he remains there at the Bud Park Baptist Church until 1904, when three young women from the congregation tearfully confront Richson about his promises to marry each of them. Oh, my God. He needs to <laughs> learn something. Like, how do you... Uh, and he is involved at the church too which is he's the, just, he's the pastor at yeah, the church that's like it's crazy right not good needless to say the the church trustees are like hey buddy you gotta resign you should probably write that letter. Uh, yeah so things continue to get worse for rich the following year because he then gets expelled for william julet for cheating on his exams so I'll cheating on women and his exams yep nice yep. Although a source I did find said that a school official actually wrote to Richson's father stating that, quote, Clarence has become deranged and they could no longer keep him as a student. So it sounds like he cheated on his exams and they were like, you crazy. Bye. Yeah. I don't really think that he's a very good person. I mean, he's not the best guy. It seems like, I don't know, like he doesn't care about anything because it's like there's all these women and then he's also cheating on his exams. It's just. But he really likes preaching. He really likes preaching, really but likes maybe preaching. he shouldn't do it. Well, it was kind of funny because one of the sources, and it wasn't the most accurate of sources, so I questioned the, the yeah. veracity of some of the info. It actually has this, t- like, it said that when the three young women from the congregation, like, confronted him, it was after a service where he had just had this really fiery sermon about how mothers should keep tabs on their daughters so they don't fall into like a sinful situation (laughs) well i mean yeah he definitely should not be talking about sinful situations i know i know so so we're at like nine or ten fiancés now he's been booted out of school and he's also working kind of odd jobs around st louis now odd jobs for an odd man However, in 1906, uh, Richson gets another break and he starts attending college again, this time at the Newton Theological Seminary in Newton, Massachusetts. So everything seems to be looking up for him. Then over summer break of 1907, 
he takes a temporary position at a church in El Paso, Texas. However, once he's in Texas, Richardson's mental state deteriorates again, and he begins to experience uh, cataleptic states. Are you familiar with those? I didn't know what they were. So basically, you're not moving. Yeah. It's, uh, because it's, I, I take it from the root words of like cataplexy and also cata, catatonia. Mm-hmm. Cataplexy, totally. Yeah. So it's like your body is like stiff, but it's like it could be in a position and like yeah. if, if somebody moves, like if arms at an angle, somebody it'll, moves it, it'll, it'll go stay. Back. Oh, it'll go back. Okay. Yeah. Because um, or it'll stay, depending. back when I worked mental health, um, we had this nurse who used to work in a state hospital and she was telling us all about her time there and how there were certain catatonic patients that like you could actually freaking pose them in different like you know different ways like you stretch their arm out their arm would stay out like that and just yeah that just reminds me of the children's show today's special i don't think i know that (gasps) oh it's an oldie it's like from like the early 80s it was on it was on nickelodeon and i was a nick kid and it was a canadian show all about this like well of course it's canadian it was about this magical mannequin named jeff who had a magic hat that would make him come to life when it was on his head but like frosty the snowman yes like frosty the snowman he's a mannequin and his friend Jody, who's like a night dresser at the department store, and she discovers that Jeff is magical one day. And uh, there were a lot of scenes where, like, they would pose the actor and then put his hat on him. Oh, wow. Yeah. There's also a mouse in that somehow, like a puppet mouse. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe not. It could be like, it's like, I was so young. It's like that time in your childhood where you're like, did that happen or is that a fever dream? Yeah, that it sounds very strange. So it very <laughs> <laughs> might as well have been a, a fever dream. And you are sick right now, Nicole. Yeah, I'm sorry. I am so sick. And sick in the head. So, Richton has these cataleptic states when he gets to Texas. Um, He's also starting to kind of rant and experience paranoia. Kind of general paranoia, like people are out to get him, his enemies are coming for him, that sort of thing. Nothing, All nothing the, specific. The yeah, nothing with like a specific delusion or anything, thankfully. It's just like general paranoia. So the folks in Texas are like, well, we really expected a summer preacher. I guess not. And he gets sent back to Massachusetts to recover at a home of a friend. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. He's only in Texas about a month or two before this happens. So he's recovering from his mental breakdown. And he spends the rest of the summer at his friend's house. And eventually he becomes well enough to return to class at Newton Theological Seminary. In 1908, he finally accepts a position as a pastor again because he's well enough to. And this time it's at the Baptist Church in Hyannis, Massachusetts. All right. Many members of the congregation weren't sure what to make of Richson. And a lot of the sources I came across describe him with the same phrase, which leads me to believe like this was like, I don't know. Maybe a phrase that was used frequently to describe him in papers later, but mm-hmm. he was described as, quote, a tall, handsome giant from Virginia with touch with a touch of mysticism and a fiery preaching style. Oh, all right. That yeah. actually a sounds kind of cool. Giant. Oh, I wonder, like, a how tall, many of giant the women that said that were, um, you know, um, his engaged to him? Yeah. I would say about 17 <laughs> percent of the congregation. <laughs> no, actually, 17 women. at now. <laughs> So he rolls into this, like, you know, Hyannis, this this New England, you know, Cape Town, lots of fishermen. And everyone's sort of like, well, this is a different style of pastor than we're used to. Everyone is kind of waiting to see what will happen with Richson. Everyone except for 16-year-old Avis Linnell, 
she is instantly taken with this new pastor. Uh, a lot of people describe Avis as a very bright and intelligent girl with a lively and happy disposition. She was also a very talented singer. She sang soprano in the church choir. Oh, nice. And she had an ear for music. So the months pass and Richson begins to hang out with Avis more. Avis falls in love with Richson and he says he returns her feelings. All right. Beautiful love story. Beautiful, beautiful love story. We all know how his love stories go. So, (laughs) yeah. And that's exactly how things proceed with Avis. On her 17th birthday, he presents Wait, how old was she when they met? 16. Oh, and how old was he? He is about 31. Oh, why are you after a young child like that? Okay. Well, I mean, he is a pastor, so. Yeah, I I mean, it's... (laughs) So on her 17th birthday, he presents her with a ring and their engagement is proudly announced by Avis's parents to a small group of friends and the congregation. Now, marriage plans were placed temporarily on hold because, again, Richson is still in school doing his post like graduate work for uh, theology. And he also is only working as a pastor at this small Baptist church in Hyannis. And it wasn't the wealthiest of communities. Uh, one source I read said he was making a about $250 a month, which is pretty um, pretty low pay. So they wanted Richson to save some of his pastor pay to be able to afford a house to share with Avis before they actually got married. Okay, that's good. And Richson being Richson is like, sure, that sounds fine to sounds me. Sounds wonderful. If I don't have to get married to her right away, then I mean, I'm, you know, can still string along all these other girls that I probably have. Exactamundo. So Richson, Richson continues to serve as pastor at the, the Hannah's Baptist Church. And during his tenure, after he gets engaged to Avis, he starts experiencing a few in- incidents that raise concern among the congregation about their pastor's mental condition. Oh, great. Here we go again. Yep. He starts to spiral. What a surprise. So one evening, Dr. Ferdinand Binford, who is a member of the church, is called to Richson's boarding house. Now, Dr. Binford arrives, and he finds Richson slipping in and out of consciousness, ranting and raving about people being out to get him. And there are uh, some additional church members there. And since everyone's concerned about not only Richson's safety but their own, because, again, he's a big dude, yeah, they have two of the church members restrain him on the bed, and Dr. Binford proceeds to give him a shot of morphine to calm him down. Binford sits with him through the night, and in the morning, Richson is rational again a little bit weak almost under the weather like he had the flu okay but he's in his right mind again so benford kind of writes it off and you know does the doctor's due diligence of you know if you start to feel off again please let me know then a few weeks later other church members report hearing richson rant several times about items and money being stolen from his room at the boarding house uh, one man who discussed the supposed robberies with richson said that quote his whole state of mind appeared insane there was also an incident with $50 that went missing from the minister's office at the church. It was one of the parishioners' money. And later it was fo- found out by another parishioner that Richson had sent that money m- via mail order to a woman out in Utah. Oh, okay. So perhaps another fiancé. We of don't know. Of course. Well, I'm pretty certain that it's another fiancé. And then on top of all of these other crazy incidents that are happening with Richson... He proceeds to give these increasingly fiery sermons fixated on brimstone punishment for sexual sins. Oh, so is he like like a Calvinist or? 
Uh, sort of. A lot of the descriptions of his preaching style kind of have that like very Southern Baptist fiery sort yeah, of. Yeah, it's like, all fire and brimstone. Yeah, and I, I think of when I was reading it, I kept picturing like a revival tent preacher. Just okay, like, yeah, I could see that. And the church is kind of like, oh, so this isn't really mm, working out. And they hold a vote to determine if they want to ask Richardson to resign. And it does pass, and they ask him to resign. And he does in early 1910. Next, Richardson manages to secure a pastor position at an even more prestigious Baptist church. Uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, there is a church called the Emmanuel Baptist Church. It's in a super, well, at the time, rich, ritzy neighborhood. Okay. Some of Boston's wealthiest families, wealthiest and well-connected families go there. And since this is a far richer church, Richardson's salary increases about sevenfold. And he's kind of making big bucks. He's moving, you know, from Hyannis to Cambridge, which is basically Boston. Yeah. And he encourages Avis to join him in the Boston area. He says, hey, why don't you apply to the New England Conservatory of Music since it's, since it's important for you as a future minister's wife to have a really good understanding of music so that you can lead the, the, the choir. musical. Yeah, the choir and the musical components of our, of our services. Uh, Avis is like, sure, honey. And she applies. And because she's a smart, talented person, she gets in and she is accepted. She moves to Boston and she starts living in the uh, YWCA. So the yeah, the Young Women's Christian Association, I think. Yeah, whatever it's called. In I Boston. remember um, when I was younger, there used to be a YWCA around here. And that's where I had my pool parties because my mom didn't like the YMCA. Too manly there? I guess. Too much testosterone. Yeah. She needed her estrogen fix. Her essie fix. Essie mm. fix. So, now, Richen's new church, as I mentioned before, was attended by some of the wealthiest and most prominent families in Boston, and that included the family of Violet Edmonds, who was the daughter of a super-duper wealthy Cambridge businessman. Some of the sources said he was a multimillionaire. Other ones just said he was a regular old millionaire. How boring. Mm-hmm. Now, Richardson, of course, being Richardson, starts to court Violet. And while he's courting Violet, he's still spending time with Avis. By December of 19... It's nothing out of the ordinary. No, perfectly on brand for Richardson. Absolutely. By December of 1910, his relationship with Violet has grown more serious, and they get engaged. And they announce their engagement in the society pages of the Boston newspapers in March of 1911. Uh-oh. Yeah, what about poor Avis? Exactly. So Avis sees the papers because she's living in Boston too. And when she confronts Richardson, he says that the paper has it wrong. It's a mistake. It's just a piece of gossip. Don't <laughs> worry about it. Of course. We're still engaged. You still have my ring, honey boo. And then he goes, about that ring. I noticed the diamond's a little loose in it. You should give it to me so I can take it to oh a jeweler to, God. to get it tightened up. And at that point, as they head into summer of 1911, that's when Richardson really starts distancing himself from Avis. He starts spending less time with her. He's only seeing her on occasion to the point where it almost becomes a conflict between the couple. In October, early October, late September, depending on the source of 1911, Avis discovers she's pregnant. Okay. Yeah. Bit of a problem. So things are kind of rocky with Richardson, so she contacts him and they go to lunch and she tells him 
found out that she's pregnant with his baby and that she needs to know what to do. And he basically tells her, hey, don't worry. We can't get married right away, but there's a new pill that can, will help you with your quote-unquote delicate condition. Delicate condition. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. He basically says, I'll get this pill for you. It'll take care of the pregnancy. Don't worry about it. We'll meet We'll meet up again. It's like the morning after pill. Exactly. Except this is 19 motherfucking 11. And that didn't exist. Nope. So, on October 14th, 1911, Avis and Richardson meet up for lunch. He gives her the pills that he had procured from his chemist. Or, I'm sorry, chemist. It's very British of me. From his druggist. From his druggist. And from the local hey, apothecary. The local apothecary. He's like, here, take these. They will, you know, you'll have a spontaneous abortion and the pregnancy will be taken care of and we can move on with our lives. Okay. Spontaneous abortion is like the, not a word that I ever want to hear again in my life. Spontaneous combustion. It, that's what it sounds like, mm-hmm. but with an abortion. So it's like a fire in your, your uterus. And then it's like that one hard sneeze. The one. Oh, <laughs> sorry. That was gross. I'm sorry, guys. That was horrible. You shouldn't joke about that, but anyway. So later on October 14th, Avis is discovered that evening on the brink of death in the bathroom of the YWCA that she's staying at. The other girls who find her take her to her room. However, before a doctor can arrive, she passes away. Oh, shit. I mean, I'm not entirely surprised, but. So they rule initially the police investigate and they rule that uh, Avis's death is a suicide. As witnesses confirmed that she had discovered about her minister fiance's engagement to another girl. And then when they did an autopsy on Avis, they discovered her pregnancy and also an extremely large dose of potassium cyanide in her stomach. Um, it was such a large dose that like the coroner slash medical examiner said that it was enough to kill at least like 10 men. So was it about like a thimble full, you'd say? I would say I would say maybe like two and a half thimbles. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the police assume basically based on the circumstantial evidence that she killed herself because she didn't want to live with the shame of being an unwed mother and the guy she was engaged to has dumped her. Because he's an asshole. Because he's an asshole. And that seems to be the official line until Avis's brother-in-law arrives in Boston to claim her body. And her brother-in-law was told by the matron at the uh, YWCA that she had contacted Richson and he said that he didn't know Avis very well when the matron told her told him about her death. The brother-in-law was like, what? I never liked this guy. Something, something ain't right. Yeah. So he confirms that there was no suicide note discovered with Avis's body and that she had actually laid out a bunch of fresh clothes for herself in the bathroom, which is a bit odd for somebody who's going to poison themselves. That is very strange. Yes, absolutely. And I guess they actually found her like with her feet in the bathtub. Okay. So almost like she had gotten undressed. And was going to take a bath. And done like a bath or something or was standing in the tub. Yeah. Took those pills and then killed over. Great. Yep. Super awesome. So her brother-in-law is like, this is super weird. And he does try to go to the police and they're kind of like, listen, she killed herself, buddy. I'm sorry. It's it's tragic for your family, but this is what this evidence says. And he's like, yeah, no. So he goes to a local Boston afternoon paper and shares his suspicions with some of the reporters there. Especially when he talks about how, you know, Reverend Richson, who's this fiery young, you know, pastor who's marrying one of the wealthiest. Who's also a very tall giant, apparently. A very tall, charming giant. 
actually was engaged to this girl who just died. And of course, the newspaper guys are like, oh, juicy, juicy. So the paper publishes the information. And then this is great. They offer a reward for anybody who has evidence of Avis or Richson purchasing potassium cyanide. Nice. So that was another part of. Yeah, that was another part of the uh, brother-in-law's like, well, does anybody know where she got it from? Yeah. No one did. So reports start coming in. And other reporters pick up on the story and they start following Richson around. He kind of tries to avoid it all and like won't talk to the press. Meanwhile, his new fiance, Violet, and his congregation at Emmanuel Baptist Church stand by him. They're like, it's just people who are jealous. He's so charming and tall. (laughs) Then a a few days later, a druggist comes forward and said that Richardson had come to him and asked him if there was a pill that he could give his pregnant dog that would kill the puppies, but not the dog. The druggist said, no, that doesn't exist. This is 1911, dude. Come on. Uh We don't even have penicillin what's up what the fuck year is it dude come on <laughs> get with the program so then richson says what can i use to put down my dog then because oh, the dog's God. gonna be ill if she has these puppies and the chemist or the druggist says well there's potassium cyanide pills i can make for you so he does and gives him the richson then another witness who worked at a candy shop said that he also saw richson on the same day as the chemist and he had purchased some candies that were then later found in Avis's room. Oh, oh candies again? Mm-hmm, candies again. He didn't mm. poison her with the candies, but he was oh, like, okay. hey, baby, I got candies and these murder pills. I mean, abortion pills. I was about to say, how many stories are you going to do that have A, brain damage, and uh, B, candy poisoners? Poison candy. All of them. So then a final witness comes forward who says, oh, I saw them having lunch on the afternoon she died. Dun, dun. All right. So police are like, uh, okay, maybe it wasn't a suicide. I guess we'll search this dude's boarding house. They search Richardson's room. Oh, no, we have to do our job now. Oh, <laughs> dumbasses. This is why I don't like people. It's like, hey, hey, Kenny, did you check under the bed? These look like pills, don't they? They look at the pills. <laughs> so, yeah, the police find the same type of potassium cyanide pills in Richardson's room that Avis took to end her life. And he was quickly arrested. Initially, Richson proclaimed his innocence. Uh, his fiance, Violet, used a lot of her family money to defend, fund his defense. His trial began on October 31st, 1911, which actually was the same date, coincidentally, that he and Violet had picked for their wedding date. Oh, womp. shit. <laughs> Guess plans change. Uh, they certainly do. Then, at trial, Richson's history of mental instability and his chain of broken engagements and simultaneous fiancés was revealed oh nice good yeah. finally everything comes to bite him in the ass yeah and it was amazing like some of the women that were contacted or signed affidavits didn't even know that they weren't his fiance anymore oh oh wow so he still had a bunch hanging on the line yeah he was still like communicating with some of these women like the woman who was the daughter of the professor in st louis yeah she specifically said oh i didn't know until he was arrested that we oh, weren't shit. set to be married. But she just thought they hadn't talked in a while? I, maybe he, I think he might have been writing letters to them oh, or something maybe, like yeah. that. I don't know. Craziness, though. Then in December of 1911, Richson kind of takes matters into his own hands when he realizes how much of his crazy life has been exposed. And he attempts to castrate himself and his cell. What? Mm-hmm. Oh, God. The doctors were able to save him. 
but not his bits. But not his bits. Not his bits. And this kind of had a shattering effect on his defense. Uh, the public I know it's had a shattering effect on me. God. <laughs> Watch a little, little home castration. <laughs> oh, you know. Um, but the public sentiment around him were like, well, clearly this dude is guilty. Otherwise, he wouldn't have cut his junk off. Yeah. And that kind of shifts the whole court trial to the point where the public turns against him. Yeah. People are like, this guy is evil. Yeah. And after Richardson recovers, he goes into court and he changes his plea to guilty. He then proceeds. Smart move. Yep. Smart move. He then proceeds to produce a complete confession about the murder of Avis Linnell. And he's sentenced to death via the electric chair. Now, despite his confession, uh, Violet's family is continuing to fund attempts to get Richardson's sentence of death in the electric chair commuted to life or, you know, some kind of like not guilty by reason of insanity. Okay, wait, they still want to help him even though he kind of dicked over their daughter too by still being engaged to all these other women? Yeah, and I guess the reason their reasoning was really the idea that he was, it was one mistake, he was out of his right mind, he didn't know what he was doing, he was delusional. Yeah. That was kind of their feeling, and they're like, but he was a very good pastor, and he was very, you know, whatever. So they hire a bunch of uh, folks to help out with this. And some of those people that are hired are several different alienists, which is the coolest word ever. I do like that word. Yeah, alienists. And then um, the director of the Massachusetts Massachusetts Mental Health Society, uh, one Dr. Lloyd Vernon Briggs, is asked by the governor to step in and interview Richardson and determine if he's mentally fit to serve his sentence. A.K.A. Is he mentally fit enough for us to strap him to this electric chair? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think everyone's mentally fit for that, but... Yeah, I don't know. Texas is very uh, toasty with people. Texas is quite toasty. Briggs is... The toastiest state of them all. That's why they have that big-ass toast. Texas toast. Texas toast. I love Texas toast. They know what they're doing Just not that there. kind of Texas toast. <laughs> wow. That took a turn. <laughs> anyway, so Dr. Briggs proceeds to get a bunch of affidavits from Richland's friends, his family... Uh, anybody he's really come in contact with. And then he goes in and has several different interviews with Richson himself. Okay. And we have so much information about Richson's personal life and his like early years because of this, because Briggs documented everything. And from Briggs's documentation, a really startling picture starts to emerge. So not only does he discover all of those head injuries as a child, he also discovers a family history of mental health issues. So several of Richardson's cousins and an uncle were committed to asylums. Uh, others were described as just deranged or mentally incompetent. Yeah, okay. Uh, he learned that Richardson's head trauma as a child continued into adulthood with several more accidents. Uh, the most recent was actually in April of 1911, where he had a traumatic head injury when his head somehow got caught in the doors of an elevator. What? The, oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. He needs to wear a helmet yes, all yes he the time. Um, and this was such a bad injury that he was in bed for quite a few days. And then when he recovered, he was temporarily lame in one of his legs and would have to like walk by dragging it after him. Oh, God. Okay. And he had a couple more of the cataleptic attacks at this time. Great. In almost every place that Richson lived, witnesses stated that he had bouts of insanity and paranoia, as well as multiple relationships with women. They stated that he was fixated on his sexual desires and very disappointed in himself for his inability to control himself when it came to women. He even went so far as to ask a doctor in St. Louis around 1899 
if it would be possible for him to be castrated so that he would no longer be tempted by his desires. What the actual fuck? Right? So all this comes out after Briggs starts talking to Richson. And admittedly, some of this is self-reporting, but other things are discovered via affidavits. Yeah. So Briggs determines, yeah, Richson suffers from delusions and hallucinations, has periods of uh, amnesic periods, amnesic periods, and suffers from delirium on occasion. And that Richson, quote, had exhibited signs and had had attacks of this disease for years have been recognized as mentally unsound by several physicians who advise specialists in mental diseases to attend him. Yeah, I mean, he has been in the hospital a lot, so... Yeah, so uh, overall, Briggs was almost like flabbergasted that this dude has not been committed yet yeah. from everything that he suffered. Uh, unfortunately, Briggs's report did not compel the governor of Massachusetts at the time to move forward with commuting, commuting Richson's death sentence. The governor's reasoning was that, yeah, listen, this guy's mentally unstable, um, but by all accounts, and according to your report, these are short bouts, they're temporary, and he wasn't in a state like that when he planned this murderous act to take Avis Linnell's life. It seemed like he definitely knew what he was doing when he committed the murder, mm-hmm. in my opinion, anyway. So despite all the evidence of Richardson being a deeply damaged individual, probably from physical trauma that led to mental instability. Yeah. Uh, he was executed in the electric chair May 21st, 1912, only a few weeks after the Titanic sunk. Oh, wow. Just want to place that in history for you. I mean, my heart will go on, but... So that's my story. What do you think? Kind of crazy, right? It was, yeah, nuts. Uh, I thought it was only interesting because of all the, the fiancés. The fian- yeah, I, I like that part, too. I, I, I always like that when people have either, like, a shit ton of mistresses or they have, mm-hmm. like, all these, you know, fiancés. Like, your story with Ray... Hernandez. Hernandez, yeah. yeah. With all his Fernandez? crazy... Fernandez? I can't remember. Fernandez, Hernandez. The Lonely Heart Killers. Yeah, Lonely Heart Killers. That's the one. Selma Hayek. Um, Selma Hayek. <laughs> I'm sure um, but I, yeah, I did like that where it was just kind of like, hey, you know what? Great. I'm going to marry you. Yes, let's do this. And then I guess uh, we're going to you know, take all your money. Later. I wonder if on the course of our road trip, if we will encounter more folks like Ray and like I'm sure. Clarence Richardson where it's like, Head trauma, impulse control, lots of, like, relationships, lots of marriages, lots of, you know, fiancés. Lots of wackiness. Lots of wackiness, yeah. So before I forget, my sources for this story were Murderpedia, several articles from the New York Times. I did sign up for a New York Times Oh, are you serious? No, they're not getting my money. (laughs) Well, if you need to borrow it for your time, the the time machine, that was very helpful. Also, the New York Times loved that. But Jesus, out of this whole story. Oh, really? Yeah. There were literally like 15 different articles from 1911, 1912. And it was every couple of days. Every couple of days they post about, not post, they would print something about <laughs> Rich, the Richson, uh, Avis Linnell murder trial. It was very interesting. See, yeah, I wanted to see the Time Machine articles. Like, that's really what I wanted to see. Yeah, I'll give you my login. Okay. I hooked you up. Uh, there was also a similar article, contemporary article from the Sacramento Union that I used. Uh, I also used Cape Cod and the Old Colony, which is a book by Albert Perry Bingham. Bingham? Bingham. Albert Perry Bingham. The New England Historical Society website and a other website I found called the Malefactors Register, which is a law and crime um, blog. I like the way that one sounds. Yeah, it's very serious. So that's my story. I liked it. And I'm liking these new microphones, too. I know. Me, too. 
but I think we should take a break because I need to get out of this car and pee. Mm-hmm. Me too. All right, everybody. We will be right back. All right, and we are back. We back, y'all. So I have a fun story. Tell a nice me. little haunted story. So excited. Well, the story itself is not haunted, but there is a haunting in it. Hopefully it's not haunted or else, you know, then Weird. we're in for some fun tonight. We're going to throw some holy water on your laptop. And exactly. And hope it doesn't fry the whole thing. Yep. <laughs> Hopefully the battery doesn't explode because it is Adele. But God, Satan. Oh, crap. All right. So I guess I will get started on my story. Yeah, I'm excited. So you we're again, I'm curious what part of Massachusetts you're in. Well, today, we are going to a town you all know and love. I've been here. Nicole, I know you've been here. This week, we're in Salem. Woo! Yes, the town that shares a name with my cat. It's a fun town. I really I really like it I love it Salem. It's so cool. There's a lot to do there. It's a fun place to spend in a couple days or an afternoon, even, if that's yeah. what you have. Yeah, when I was there, um, we stayed at this really nice place. It was called the Peabody House, or they pronounced it Peabody. Oh, cool. Um, it was this really nice place. It had this fireplace in it. It was like, it only had one bedroom, uh, but the other bed was like in the living room. So it was kind of interesting, well, but it was really nice hardwood floors, like really old and fun. Yeah. I I've, really liked it. That sounds cool. I haven't stayed in like a, that sounds almost like a B&B kind of. Kind of. I don't remember. It was a while ago, but it I was like 20 at, years ago. I stayed at the Hawthorne Hotel, the one that's like right in downtown Salem. Okay, yeah. It was pretty cool. It was a little, it's definitely an older hotel. Like yeah. it still has some of the old character, let's say. Yeah. So, fun fact about Salem. There are 36 towns in the U.S. with the name. And I found out a long time ago that the reason for this is because in America, we love to name towns after other places. And with the Puritans and such, a lot of our names also end up being like of a religious nature especially in the original colonies. And the town named Salem is just a shortened version of Jerusalem. I actually learned that from Stephen King's Salem's Lot. Oh, really? Yeah, because it's set in a town named Salem, and yeah. he talks about why they shortened it and stuff. In the oh, book. that's cool. That's really cool. I didn't know that. I might have to read that one then. I'll stop my boycott on Stephen King and read it. <laughs> <laughs> um, with the town of Salem, Massachusetts, however, we tend not to think of Abrahamic religions and more about witchcraft, even though it was the Puritans that started the awfulness that was the Salem Witch Trials. Anyway, my story isn't actually on the Witch Trials of 1692, but, you know, I had to mention them with, you know, being in this town. The story is going to be on a very famous house in Salem, the House of the Seven Gables. I've been there! Uh, you may be saying, Seven Gables? I only know of Clark. <laughs> well, that's not what we're talking about. Gables are a wall or roof style. A hipped roof is the roof that with all four sides that goes around the house, mm -hmm. where a gabled roof only has like the two sides and the walls rising up on the other sides. Oh, okay. That being said, it kind of makes this house pretty unique, having seven freaking gables. The house itself is on Derby Street, not too far from the Derby Wharf. The street that it's on is actually really beautiful, and the view of the harbor from the home is even more so. You said you've been there, so... Yeah, I've been there. Yeah. Lovely garden around it now, too. Yeah, beautiful garden. It's also the oldest restored wooden home in New England, which is oh. a fun fact. Besides this, it has two other names, the Turner House or the Turner Ingersoll Mansion. And I had it in my notes to ask you if you've been there, but now I, I know have. that you have. I was there maybe 20 years ago or more, 
and I mostly remember the gift shop where I bought the Scarlet Letter. <laughs> so I don't know. It was in high school. I went with my family, so it was a really long time ago. I've actually been there twice. The first time, probably about 15 years ago. And then again recently, probably in the last like six six years or so. Oh, nice. Yeah. See, I mean, you get the chance to go to Massachusetts on the regular. Like, I want to go back there. We should make a Salem trip sometime. Yeah, that's easy, very doable. Yes. Anyway, let's talk about this house. This house was built by a sea captain by the name of John Turner in 1668 and was passed down through the family for three generations through his son and grandson, both also named John Turner after John I died at sea. Also, uh, John had other children named Eunice, Abiel, Elizabeth, and Freestone. I feel like Abiel is a name I've never heard before. But you have heard it before because it was the name of one of the sons uh, in the Dudley Town story that I did. I, I know. And I was, I'm was, i like, well, that's such a weird name. I'm like, oh. Mm. This one's spelled differently, though, because this one's A-B-I-A-L and the other one is A-B-I-E-L. So, hmm. I don't know. Just a popular name in colonial new england <laughs> i guess that we never heard again after this i think it's biblical too I name think. my next cat abiel yeah i'm probably gonna have to do the same <laughs> but freestone i wonder how they came up with the name freestone well i'm building a house uh, this was really nice of someone just to give me all this free stone hey there's a name for my kid it just flows off the tongue i don't babe that's great after writing that in there i found out why the name was freestone Oh, why? Was it a last name? It was a last name okay. of the family member. So That's usually like my second guess. Where I'm like, well, that's weird. Is it from the Bible? No. Is it a last name? Yeah, exactly. It's a family name. Anyway, before the house went to his eldest child, and I'm adding this because I thought it was cool. When John died, he left the house to his wife, uh, who ended up marrying another sea captain named Charles Redford before she too passed away. Charles was the one that actually put the son into his will making sure that he had a claim to the house before he, too, died at sea. Hmm. That's actually kind of impressive. Yeah. I thought but that was really cool. I guess if he doesn't have any kids of his own, then it's kind of like... Yeah, I'm not sure if they had any more children or not. When John originally bought the house, it was in such a horrible condition that he actually just tore the whole thing down and started from scratch, leaving only, like, the cellar and the fireplace. It was then sold to Captain Samuel Ingersoll in 1782, who later also died at sea leaving the house to his daughter, Susanna, who is the cousin of author Nathaniel Hawthorne. I know him. Of course, we all do. We all had to do him in school at one point or another. Cover him in school. Yeah, okay, let's not say do him, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> had to do a dead guy in school, you know. Um, the reason for the sale of the house is because our third John Turner lost the family fortune. From what I could find, he wasn't bringing in as much money as his father or grandfather, and did way too much with renovating the house to actually be able to afford it. Hawthorne ended up spending a lot of time in this house, leading to his novel, The House of the Seven Gables, which was written in 1851. In 1908, the home was purchased by a woman named Caroline Emerton. She was a philanthropist who would go on to create the museum that it is today, renovating the home to bring it back to the glory of its 17th century days and to aid immigrants, uh, Polish immigrants, uh, who were coming to Salem with the proceeds from the museum. Cool. Her family were also seafarers, and she actually purchased the house for only $1. Over the years, other homes were purchased and moved onto the lot, including Hawthorne's birthplace, the retired Beckett house, the Hooper Hathaway house, the Counting house, and the Fippin house. 
The entire campus, which included all six houses, is on the National Register of Historic Places as of March 29th, 2007. So it's all safe. It's not going anywhere. Unless the sea comes and takes it, like it's taken many of its owners. Apparently, yeah. I mean, there's already been three or four, maybe. Now, this house has been renovated so many times over the centuries. What was its original structure is actually just the middle of the house today. Okay. The first of the renovations was the addition of a lean-to kitchen and an L to the back of the house. Turner added a bit more to the house by 1676 including a south extension with its own chimney, a parlor, a large bedroom on the second floor as well. While the older parts of the house had low ceilings, these new parts uh, had really quite high ceilings as compared to everything else. Like that was in like Vogue at the that time. Was, yeah, yeah, that was the style. It was the new hip style. These kids today with their high ceilings. I know, right? What will they think of next? Uh, the biggest feature of the house that I kept coming across was the large central chimney which is original or maybe nearly original to the house. I can't quite remember now. (laughs) Uh, The new wing of the house also had a three-gabled garret at the top, and a garret is like a small attic, which can be used as a living space, usually with the slanted walls and everything else. I've been inside that. I know I have too at one point, but I just don't remember. Because like I said, it was like 20 or more years ago. Uh, Later, John Turner II renovated the house in the Georgian style where he added wood paneling gross and sash (laughs) windows sash windows sound fancy but really they're just those windows with the individual panels Mm -hmm. by the end of all these renovations the house contained 17 rooms and was over 8,000 square feet wow that's that's ginormous big house yeah not as big as the one house that I saw for sale I like looking up houses and just looking at the inside of them (laughs) Uh, so I looked up houses. How does the other half live? Yeah, oh right. my god! Well, I looked up houses in freaking Beverly Hills. Wow. Because I'm like, you know, why not? See how the rich people live. Yeah. So I looked at this one house, and it was like, I think it said like it was like thirty-two thousand square feet. Wow. Yeah, it was like millions upon millions of dollars. Yeah. I'm like, how do? You, why do you need that much house? And who cleans it? I I'm mean, not there's cleaning it. there's multiple people for that. Yeah, obviously. there has to be an entire staff of like maids and stuff. Because there's no way. Who mows that lawn? Oh, yeah, not me again. (laughs) So I just want to go back to Nathaniel Hawthorne and just describe his life here for a moment, since he's probably the biggest reason for how famous this house is. Although he didn't actually live in the house, he did visit his cousin Susanna a lot of the time, as well as her adopted son, Horace Connolly. Hawthorne would come over a lot and play cards, specifically a game called Whist. Do you know what Whist is? Uh, no. It sounds familiar, though. Well, I looked up the rules, but it seemed, like, really weird and confusing since it's a trick-taking card game, and I don't know what a trick is other than in the world of prostitution. So, anyway, Susanna would take him around the house and show him everything that had been done to it. He was really interested in the mortises and things like that uh, that you just don't really see in a lot of houses, She also showed him where the gables used to be. At the time that he was there, there were only three gables left. They were put back in later when the house was renovated by Caroline. So you might wonder why his book is the House of the Seven Gables and not the House of the Three Gables. Well, he kind of just really liked the sound of seven. I mean, I get it. It has its, you know, connotations. It has a nice ring to it. According to Wikipedia, he wrote in a letter, The expression was new and struck me forcibly. 
I think I shall make something of it. Yeah. Oh, Natty H. Natty H. Yeah. Just sounds like Natty Ice. Everybody calls him that. Did you know that? No, no. And I think you're just, you know, sick and weird right now. Is it just me? Yes. It's that cold you got getting to your head. (laughs) So in a weird way, he was inspired by the sound of words more than the actual house itself, which is kind of weird. He even spoke of the book while writing it as if it were, if you were like building a house saying weird things toward the end of the process, like, I'm just putting a few nails on the roof or something like that. He was a weird dude and also very reclusive, as most writers are. I know I am. I never leave my freaking house. I uh, kind of love that, though, the fact that he's, like, writing a house about a book, and he's like, yep, just put I would totally be that just, person. I, yeah, I'd probably be weird, too. You just know. thinking about what kind of drapes I want to hang. <laughs> so, um, fun fact, Horace, the adopted son that I mentioned earlier, told Hawthorne a story about these uh, Acadian lovers that ended up inspiring Longfellow's 1847 poem Evangeline, according to Wikipedia. Huh. Yeah. I like Evangeline. It's one of my more beloved poems. Yeah, I like it too. I also like the name Evangeline. I don't know why, but I just really like that name. Anyway, some really cool things happened in the early 1900s when Caroline Emerton bought the house. Her father was also a sea captain, and I think I read somewhere that he also died at sea, but I could be wrong. Um, I couldn't find it when I went back to check, so who knows. Uh, fun fact, though. Another fun fact. This is the fun fact episode. I don't episode. know if I can take all this fun, Eden. I know. One in four people actually died at sea back then, so that's why there's so many deaths at sea that we're hearing about. That's crazy. With this house. So it's not like some weird curse. It's the fact that one in four people died at sea because like that was what a lot of people in Massachusetts did for a living. You're right yeah. by the water. Mm-hmm. You were seafarers. You were traders, things like that. Uh, first off, uh, she ended up spending two years from 1908 to 1910 restoring this home and putting back on the missing gables and such. And she tried to make the home look as much like it did when it was built. She did, however, make certain changes to the house in order to make uh, it more like Hawthorne's book in certain spots, including adding the scent shop and other such fictional things that were just products of Hawthorne's imagination rather than the real thing. This was done mostly for the tourists. Yeah, I remember uh, there's like a secret staircase that goes up to the the garret that's in Hawthorne's book. Well, there's also a really, really fun part of this house, which is this bookcase. That house is a hidden staircase yes. leading up to the attic. Bookcase. When I saw that, okay, I'm always like, you know, there's certain things I'd really like to have in my house. Right, and a hidden staircase is one of them. Or just a bookcase door. I love that I idea love those. of like, putting that like on a door. You can buy them. It's crazy. I've looked at them. Oh, up, no, I've seen them, like, yeah. You can like have it perfectly balanced. You just like, can push it with like two fingers and it swings open. And I'm like, yep, that that's, is so cool. Yeah, I really want That's where want I want that. my grown-up office to be. <laughs> <laughs> at first when I was like, you know, doing my notes... It looked like it was uh, this staircase was built by Caroline, but when I researched it more, I found out that it was built by John Turner II. And the reason for the secret staircase, which you might not know, is because he was afraid for the lives of his sisters during the insanity that was the Salem witch trials. So if the magistrate came looking for more women who were supposed to be witches, uh, they could hide Anne Frank style in the attic. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. So I think that was really cool. Uh, As for things that are still original to the house, the beams and rafters are all original, as well as the Georgian paneling. Hmm. Another fun fact. 
because I've got a ton. The House of the Seven Gables was featured in a Wonder Woman comic book. Yes. Uh, It was her second issue, to be exact. She chased Nazis away from the house. I'm not lying. Comics were just crazy in the 40s. Nazis in Massachusetts? Yes. Nazis. So. Sure glad Wonder Woman was there. I know. She saved the day (laughs) with her lasso of truth and her invisible plane. I've always wondered about her invisible plane. Like, how does that work? Would you still be able to see her? And she just looks like she's just like pantomiming sitting. I mean... If I use my extensive, and by extensive, I mean I've watched a couple episodes of Hanna-Barbera's cartoons and, like, Space Ghost. Oh, yeah. I feel like you could probably see her. I I feel like you'd be able to see her, and it's just like, oh, there's a woman sitting on nothing up there in the sky. Or even, like, even if you can't see her because she's in the plane and the plane itself is invisible, windows are always invisible, essentially. So you just see, like, this woman's face, like, (laughs) flying through the air. A severed head flying (laughs) through the air. So disturbing. Yeah, that is terrifying. Definitely terrifying. Um, Let's hear about more terrifying things, because as far as hauntings go, this house has a fair amount. Okay, hit me. And when I told my mom that I was doing House of the Seven Gables, I was like, we were there, right? I think we were. She was like, oh, yes. Wait, it's haunted? I didn't know it was haunted. So here we go. Um, It said that the faucets and the lights will go on and off of their own accord. Mm, annoying yeah right exactly don't fuck with me ghosts do not fuck with me um there are shadows that seem to move around the house all on their own i don't know about you but i really do not like that Mm -mm. i've had way too many bad experiences with uh shadow people uh and such both in and out of sleep paralysis and in nightmares as a kid so yeah it's no nope it's just not a thing that i enjoy uh there's also a strong unknown benign presence that's a quote by the way uh that can be felt in the house and it's said that uh just keeps people company so like the companion spirit basically pretty much i didn't really find out um how it's keeping them company uh but it was late and i didn't really want to know because i was going to bed soon so (laughs) (laughs) you know I mean, that's kind of lovely if you think about it. You're like, I feel lonely. And then, like, all of a sudden you feel this presence and you don't feel alone. So you're not really maybe creeped out, but you're also kind of like, well, I'm yeah, not alone in here. Exactly. It's I like, I don't feel w- threatened, but I, I'm definitely not alone. I'm, I'm still not quite comfortable, but I'm not lonely anymore. Thanks. Um, a woman can be seen peering out of the windows in the house. This ghost is believed to be Susanna. And when people see her, she just kind of ends up disappearing. Mm. Uh, There's also a little boy who looks out the windows and likes to play in the attic. Okay. Uh, A lot of workers have reported seeing things as well, and a psychic even was able to snap a picture of the little boy playing near the gables. Uh, If you are a professional or amateur ghost hunter, you're probably SOL if you want to investigate this place because the owners don't really want the paranormal aspect of the house to overshadow their goals for the place, which is all about preservation and learning. I guess that makes sense. It is a very, um, it's very educational museum focused, like about the history of New England yeah. too, when you go there. So it's not like, it is about Hawthorne, but it's also about like that, that particular slice of life, I guess. Exactly. It, it kind of brings you back to those days. I know it brings me back because I was definitely there in the 1600s, you oh, know. Good times. Doing my thing, dying at sea. <laughs> it's been great. Remember when you almost died at sea? Yeah. Worst summer ever. Yeah, I know. All that salt water was not tasty. Sand gets in the darndest places. <laughs> Um, so if you're interested in tours, uh, you can go there for guided ones for a fee. 
There's also a theater which puts on some plays about the history of the house and of Salem in general. There is one about John Hawthorne, the hanging judge, uh, known best for the Salem witch trials, and is also a relative of Nathaniel Hawthorne. It's spelled differently, though, because... I think one might have had an E and one didn't. Yeah, Nathaniel Hawthorne but was kind of, like, creeped out n- yeah, by Yeah, Nathaniel it. changed his name yeah. to kind of be like, I don't want to be associated with this guy. I mean, good for him. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be associated with him either. Uh, you can also go to Nathaniel Hawthorne's house after the tour has ended, because it's, like I said, right on the property. I don't think I went there. Uh, I think we did. I, th- I don't think I did. I would like to go back just to go there now. Yeah, I would, too. I want to see all the houses. Um, there is a parking lot on the site, but it's small, so I wouldn't bet on finding a spot unless you're feeling really lucky. Street parking is also a beast on, on Derby. Derby. Yeah, right? yeah, it's Derby. Um, I would park in a garage if I were you. It just it makes it easier. And honestly, most of Salem's extremely walkable, which is why it's oh, yeah. such a good little town. Salem's fa- great. The fantastic candy shop, like steps from, like across the street and a couple steps up from, the. Uh, House of Seven Gables. Oh, yeah? They do, like, old-timey candy and stuff. It's great. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm, I'm in for that. Um, we walked most of the time that we were in Salem. We parked at the hotel that we stayed at and just walked throughout everything. We took a bus once, and I think that was to go to the um, the Witch Museum. Gotcha. Uh, if you're a really big Hawthorne fan, you can also go to Hawthorne Street and see the giant freaking statue of Nathaniel Hawthorne as well. Mm-hmm. It's like a big ass statue, so you can't miss it. I do have a friend who's a super, super Hawthorne freak, and I did go to Salem with her. Yeah, and uh, like she did like her her masters, I believe, on Hawthorne and all of his works. Oh wow, that's cool. Yeah, she's at like a Nathaniel Hawthorne themed like tattoo back piece. Oh wow, that's like she really lives cool. herself some Nathaniel Hawthorne. So who doesn't? I definitely have that statue photographed, and I will share them on our website. Oh, do it, yeah. Um, If you're ever in Salem, I really suggest you check this house out. If you're into history, the paranormal, Nathaniel Hawthorne, beautiful old houses, or places owned by people who constantly die at sea. (laughs) So that's my story this week. Uh, Nicole, uh, what's your favorite place in Salem to visit? That's a super great question. I mean, in terms of like Salem-specific related places, I would say... My favorite place is the memorial to the victims of the Salem witch hysteria. Oh, yeah, that is cool. Yeah, it's it's just very um, – the way that the design of the memorial and the artists who create it kind of creates this very peaceful yet somber area with like the – it's like a little sco- stone alcove with benches. Yeah. And has every one of the, the women and, and men who were killed during the course of the witch trials on them. It's just very – peaceful and it's very different from any other place i i felt in in salem so i think that's my favorite place i'm not sure if it's the same place or not because like i said long time ago don't really remember but um like there's like a little graveyard mm-hmm. and like cobblestone streets and all this really nice stuff it was very peaceful there i liked it i'm not sure if that's the same place but there was like a graveyard with like a lot of the people who had died in the I forget if it's the because gra- there is the graveyard you can walk through and you can see like Judge Hawthorne's yeah you know, gravestone and stuff. Yeah, this might have been a little ways off from there, but I can I can show you a picture. Yeah, of what I'll, I have. I'll check it out sometime. Uh, my sources for this week were Wikipedia, as always, pretty much, uh, sevengables.org, hauntedhouses.com, and antiquesandthearts.com. There may have been more. I'm not sure because I have a comma on there. 
You uh, meant to add more. So like, I may eh. have meant to add more, but I was like, I'm going to bed. Good so, night know. world. But that's my story for this week. I liked it. Thank you for reminding me how delightful Salem, Massachusetts is. Absolutely. We'll definitely have to go sometime. Yeah, for sure. We can live tweet it, maybe. We could. Finally use our Twitter account. I'm going to use Twitter. <laughs> yeah. They send us enough freaking emails. Oh, I may. Uh, it's impossible to even get to any notifications on there because you like look and it's just like all these people you should follow. This person that you've never heard of. This person who you've also never heard of. And then of. Chrissy Teigen. And yeah, Chrissy Teigen <laughs> all the freaking time. I'm just like, can you shut up? Uh, maybe if true. it were Teigen and Sarah... <laughs> <laughs> i guess we should plug the pluggables yeah so lovely folks listeners friends followers all those things all those things you can contact eden and i at roadside horror show at gmail.com you almost forgot it didn't you no i just had to pause oh, okay uh, i did almost forget it damn it <laughs> uh you can also find us on twitter it is um um, no, I'm forgetting. Thank you. Roadside. At Roadside Horror. Yeah. So if you want to at us, we might see it eventually once we get through all the notifications about who we should follow. <laughs> and Chrissy Teigen. <laughs> uh, we are on Facebook and Instagram at Roadside Horror Show. So you can find us there. We also want to thank Yox Rocks Designs for our logo and also E. Massey for our intro and outro songs. Until next week, gang. Creep on, creep on creeping, creeping on. on.